With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's going on, everyone? And welcome in to another edition of B-Shape Daily. It's opening day eve, and certainly by the time you're listening to this, it's probably already St. Louis Cardinals opening day 2022. Welcome into the show. Happy to have you with me here as we kick off yet another baseball season, another season of St. Louis Cardinals baseball. As the Cardinals on Thursday afternoon will be taking on the Pittsburgh Pirates. I believe 3.15 is the first pitch time coming out of the right hand of Adam Wainwright once again. He'll be throwing that baseball to Yadier Molina. You'll have Albert Pujols in the lineup as the designated hitter. It is exciting times if you're a Cardinals fan. A lot of nostalgia going on, right? A lot of uh, history. Feels like it's creeping into what could be a very exciting 2022 season. But ideally, it won't just be the history. There will be some new memories made in 2022. That's the goal of the Cardinals. That's the goal, if you ask Yadier Molina or Albert Pujols or Adam Wainwright or any of those guys, They want to try to make something happen in 2022, and Cardinals fans would love nothing more than to see that happen, of course. And so we're going to dive right into it in today's episode with hopefully some interesting content that you'll be able to enjoy on your way down to the ballgame on Thursday, perhaps on the way home or some other time this week, you'll be able to dive in as we're getting into 2022 St. Louis Cardinals preview conversation. We're going to go team by team through my predictions for what the division will look like. And, and then my other plan was, and I and I already tweeted this out on Wednesday night, tweeted out the opportunity for people to reply with their team MVP, their team Gibby, who's going to be the Gibby of the Cardinals in 2022, the best pitcher. I said, we'll, we'll dub it the Gibby instead of the Cy Young. That seems appropriate. Who's going to be the reliever of the year for the team and the rookie of the year as well? And I asked for one bold prediction for the St. Louis Cardinals season. And people have been doing an awesome job of filling in their answers, replying to my tweet at bshafer12 on Twitter. I invite you to do the same. Let your voice be heard. Call your shot on what you think the notable performances will be this season for the Cardinals and I'm going to quickly pull it up because I, I did this last year as well. I, I think last year might have been the first year that I formally did this on either opening day or opening day eve. And I want to see how I did for last year and see what my answers were. And then maybe this year we can try to do even a little bit better. Come up with a little bit more of uh, of that crystal ball energy. So we're going to go over that. And then I, I think my plan is going to be beyond just giving some bold predictions. I'll give you on today's podcast my team MVP, my Gibby, my rookie and reliever of the year, as well as a bold expectation, or I should say bold prediction. Last year, it looks like, as I'm looking that up, I went with, instead of a bold prediction, I said, who's going to exceed expectations? And I, I didn't hit the mark on that one. But nevertheless, <laughs> I think I did okay otherwise. 
But we're going to go with a bold prediction for this year. But beyond that, I'm going to kind of go player by player and just give real quick, uh, and hopefully this doesn't take too long. I want to try to keep this tight 30 minutes or so during uh, during your commute to the game on Thursday or uh, your lunch break at work, preparing for the game, whatever the case might be in Cardinals Nation. We, we've all got a, uh, some obligations, right, for Thursday. I know some people are taking off work to get down there. I told my wife, it's really great to be able to, to go to the opening day game, but uh, to have to work on opening day is kind of a bummer, right? But that's uh, that's the life I'll be living tomorrow, and I, I certainly can't complain about that. But folks are excited in St. Louis, and, and rightfully so. It's going to be it's St. Louis's national holiday, right, every year. It was fantastic last year, even with the limited capacity at Bush Stadium. In fact, I didn't even get to go in Bush Stadium last year because there was limited capacity in the press box. And so with KMOV, uh, even even as a BBWAA member, they had limitations on uh, how many people could be in the press box. That should not be an issue tomorrow, and so I'm excited to get back at the ballpark for opening day. I did go down to Bush Stadium last year. I got to take in the atmosphere. It was exciting. It was great. And it was on the heels of, of of a COVID season that really didn't feel like it was real baseball to a lot of folks. It didn't have the energy of the fans, right? Uh, covered so many games in empty stadiums in 2020. It was just weird. It was different. And even last year, for the for the bulk of the season, uh, you, you didn't really have that full capacity energy because it was limited for the first part of the season, and then the Cardinals kind of were bad in the middle of the year. And so fans weren't exactly packing in the in the stands, which uh, you know I could understand for the circumstances of the way things went prior to that 20, uh, 20, 17 game win streak last season. My editor is going to edit that out, surely. No, it's it's me, and I'm not going to. Anyway, um, this year though, I expect uh, attendance should probably be pretty good. You know, I'm sure we'll still have. Those those dog days where we say, oh boy, you know, if the Cardinals are struggling, fans aren't showing up. And I'm not one of those guys who's going to blame fans for not showing up when things aren't going well or maybe when the, the team needs to, to make a key addition at the trade deadline and whether they do that or not. I'm not going to be one of those guys that blames the fans for not spending their hard-earned money. But I do think you're going to see a, a lot more enthusiasm about ticket sales and about people trying to at least get down to the ballpark once or twice this summer because of Albert Pujols being back you know, you can say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, like, oh, yeah, the Cardinals, Bill DeWitt, they made sure to bring back the Golden Goose, made sure to bring back the guy that's going to put butts in the seats. But, I mean, in all reality, that probably will be the case. And, and how could you blame a Cardinals fan, even if you're frustrated, even if you think they should have signed a shortstop or they should have done more to address the rotation or whatever you think, you're going to go see Albert Pujols. If you're a diehard Cardinals fan, like, you're going to want to see that. You're going to want to see him play in St. Louis again, we saw today the new murals in left field of the retired numbers not so conspicuously uh, leaving two open spots toward the, the left side of those murals for additional numbers to be potentially added on the final day of the regular season. Who's, who's to say, right? But it's going to be a special time in St. Louis, and so that's going to be really fun to, to kind of track throughout the season. But as I was saying, I'm going to try to go through player by player and talk about some expectations for uh, the majority of the the mainstays that you expect and, and whether I'm high on a guy coming into the season, whether I think somebody may have something to prove, and, and we'll, we'll kind of go off the cuff and see how, how that goes as well. A little bit of news to get into. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it because I want this to be more of a, a season preview that somebody could listen to a week from now and still have it be relevant. 
if they haven't been able to get to it just yet on on more large-scale views for the season. But Jordan Hicks is going to be the Cardinals' number five starter to begin the year. I think that's pretty important to talk about. And it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. We had clues, right? We had hints that this could end up being the case, really going all the way back into the offseason when John Mozeliak had said, I don't remember if it was the end-of-season press conference or or when exactly he had talked about this, but I do recall him saying with regard to Hicks and maybe even Alex Reyes, for 2022, we're thinking about stretching these guys out maybe a little bit and have them coming into spring camp competing as starters and potentially to get a role in the rotation. And obviously, with the signing of Steven Matz, you're like, well, you know, there's five guys. Neither of these guys, even if they're healthy, they're not going to be in the rotation. It just doesn't make sense. Well, things happen, right? You know injuries are going to take place and Jack Flaherty was that injury. And even with the lockout happening, which we thought the lockout might end up kind of tabling that talk of being able to stretch out either of those guys. In the case of Reyes, obviously he had the injury, and so he's he's not in the mix for this. But when it comes to Jordan Hicks, they said at the beginning of spring camp, hey, 45 to 50 pitches, that's kind of what we're looking at for Hicks on opening day. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. You're describing a role for him that he hasn't really had in the big leagues. He's been a closer. He's been kind of a late inning guy, but a guy throwing 50 pitches is not, you know, that's not a one inning role. So what exactly do they have in mind? Well, it turns out that 50 pitches is just kind of a launching point into what they're actually hoping could happen for Hicks. And that's maybe to stretch him out to be a bonafide starter. At first, you've got Drew Verhagen. You've got Jake Woodford as kind of the piggyback options out of the bullpen. They're not formally calling Hicks an opener, but that's basically what it's going to be in the early part of this month as he works his way up to maybe a higher pitch count. But for Tuesday against the Royals, he's going to make the start, and he'll go two innings. That's according to Ali Marmol today at uh, Bush Stadium. And so we'll see how that goes. I think it's interesting. I like it because, it's for me, it's got more upside than going with Verhagen or Woodford in that role. I think Hicks has has explosiveness to his game that those guys just don't quite possess. Does that mean it's going to work out? Not necessarily. Hicks only threw three innings this spring, gave up a couple of runs. You know, he's got the upside to do it, but it's going to be really fascinating to see whether he's able to stretch out and be successful and, and get outs, right? Because when you come in for one inning and your stuff is, you know, maybe not on that day or you don't want to be over the plate, and so you walk some guys, he's done that before, but he had 105. And when you have 105, you can get out of a lot of jams. And so that's kind of what Jordan Hicks was able to do as a reliever. He will not have that luxury as a starter. He will not be throwing 105, especially as he gets into outings where he's got to go four or five plus innings. He's going to have to conserve some more energy. And it's going to be really interesting to see that progression. I like the move, though. I like that in past years when we talk about these young fireballing pitchers that maybe have a, a checkered history when it comes to injuries and health and being able to stay on the field. It was always like, well, what's the innings limit for this guy? What are, they, what are you going to do when he, you know, how are you going to make sure he stays? And then what ends up happening? They get hurt anyway, right? So I like that this year the Cardinals are kind of like, look, the injuries are going to happen or they're not, but we're not going to reverse engineer an innings limit before we even know if the guy can be healthy on opening day. So, and, and listen, they, if, if asked, I'm sure John Mozeliak would maybe come up with an answer on what the innings limit is. But it's clearly not the priority this time around. The priority is, hey, let's get Jordan Hicks out there. We think he's a talented arm. He's He's got a lot that he can offer the team. Let's put him out there and see what he can do. And you know what? If he's still pitching healthy in July and August, we will cross that bridge when we get to it. And ideally, Jack Flaherty comes back, 
and that kind of solves itself, and you can move Hicks into more of that that Andrew Miller role like he was with the, the Indians, now they're the Guardians, but when he was with the Indians and even the Yankees, he was kind of that multi-inning weapon that he could, you know, that Jordan Hicks could conceivably be. So for me, I like the move. I like that it's not what the Cardinals have done in the past. They've always taken these these hot shot pitching prospects and they've put them in the bullpen when in reality, starting pitchers are way more valuable than relievers. And if you box a guy in before he ever gets a chance to really begin his career as a starter in the major leagues, I mean, what are you doing? You're limiting that that pitcher who could potentially uh, solve these issues for you when you have injuries. Now that now it's a Jordan Hicks. Now it's a Jordan Hicks that could potentially step in for Jack Flaherty and allow your team to not miss a beat. I'm not saying there won't be bumps in the road, but I like that they are trying it rather than taking that approach of, well, we got to be careful because of his innings or because, I mean, Jordan Hicks is thrown, let's be realistic, he's thrown 10 innings in two years. Didn't pitch in 2020 through 10 innings last year. Three innings this spring. Like, it, it may not go off without a hitch, but I like that they're trying it because I think it gets to a point of, you get these these pitchers where you're like, oh, it's a world of talent. It could go so well. And you look at the the history of it, the recent history of it, it hasn't really gone that well. Like, Jack Flaherty made it to the rotation and was really good, but then has had some injuries. That's going to happen to pitchers. It's pitching. That's the nature of the game. Dakota Hudson, Tommy John, uh, but I would still say successful on the whole because I expect big things from him this year. But you're talking about these all these pitching prospects that you, you don't trade, for one. Like, they traded Sandy Alcantara. He's turned into a stud. You know, Zach Gallen, they traded, but he's had injuries, and so you're, you're not necessarily too broken up about that until he really proves it over a long course of time. The guys that have stayed with the Cardinals, Alex Reyes, Jordan Hicks, they get kind of pigeonholed into those reliever roles, and then they still don't stay healthy. So it's like, are you maximizing their potential? I just like that the Cardinals are taking a little bit of a bold chance. It's not really what they typically do. They did the same thing with Andre Pallante in terms of a bold chance. They're taking a guy who's a, a top prospect, a pitcher that they think can help this bullpen right out of the gate, and they're calling him up to the big the big team without regard for what that means for the 40-man roster. And that is exactly what they should be doing because how many times have we talked and talked about the 40-man roster and then at the end of the day, the guy that they end up releasing or the DFA or whatever, he's nobody anyway. And that's not to diminish any of these players because they all, they all played this game at a, a level higher than any of us could. But at the same time, you got to be realistic with what what your risks are relative to, hey, you have a guy in Palante with upside. Don't worry about what it means for the 40-man roster. Just get him on the team and see what he can do. I love the approach they're taking with regard to those kind of moves when it comes to Hicks and Palante this spring, and hopefully that can, that can turn into a little bit more of an, an aggressive mindset into the season where they don't they don't wait too long. They're not too reactive. They're more proactive when it comes to recognizing uh, a deficiency on the roster and then addressing it. So I like that that's the trend that they're they're kind of setting at the beginning of the season. But let's jump into it. Let's jump into what my expectations are for the NL Central this season. As the Cardinals, they made the playoffs last year as the wild card, lost that wild card game to Los Angeles in memorable fashion. Chris Taylor off of Alex Reyes, of course. However, the Brewers won the division. And so you're looking at the Brewers right now and you're wondering, are they going to beat the Cardinals again or can the Cardinals catch them? And for me, I think the Cardinals can catch them. They absolutely can. But if you're putting if you're putting me on the spot, I'm going to go with the Brewers to win the division again. 
The thing that keeps them from doing it to me is pretty obvious. It's that their their trio of starting pitchers and and they've got another guy in Aaron Ashby. I don't know exactly what their plan is for him if he's going to be in the rotation or or the bullpen to start the season, but I, I think he's someone with a lot of talent as well. But the three I'm talking about, Corbin Burns, who won the Cy Young last year, Freddie Peralta, and Brandon Woodruff. If those three are dynamite and healthy, the Brewers win the division. They probably win 92 to 95 games and they win the division. Inevitably, it's not going to go that way. You can't, you're not all going to stay healthy. And so there's going to be uh, some trials and tribulations that Milwaukee has to go through. What will their offense, will their lineup look like? Uh, you got Colton Wong at the top. I still think he's going to be a, a good engine for that team. What do they get out of Christian Yelich? He wasn't himself last year. I think he bounces back. So I think that lineup ends up being pretty solid. Uh, the bullpen we know is good with Devin Williams, Josh Hader. They've got other arms. They've done a good job of developing there. For me, I just think that trio in the rotation, if it stays healthy, it's just too dominant uh, for the Cardinals to really catch up to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the Brewers. I don't think it's a blowout, though. I don't think it's like last year where you're going into the final days of the season and the, the outcome is already kind of determined. I think the Cardinals are going to be able to keep this one close. And I do have the Cardinals in second place in the division. They're an absolute wild card team, especially this year when you go to three wild cards in each league. I'm putting the Brewers, I, I would set the over-under for them at 91 and a half, and I'm either taking 91 or 92. And when I tweet this out on Thursday, I'm going to have to come up with my definitive rankings uh, or definitive standings and come up with what I think for the season. I do believe last year I picked the Braves. Uh, to make it pretty far. But I think I had the Rays beating them in the World Series. I'll have to check that. But nevertheless, I go Cardinals at number two in the NL Central. I do believe they make the playoffs. And I'm stuck between 88 or 89 wins. And I think I'm at about 89. Let's go 91 for the Brewers, 89 for the Cardinals. And then the rest of the division, I actually have maybe a, maybe it's a little bit of a hot take. But I actually think the NL Central is tougher top to bottom than people are going to think. Or maybe not even to bottom, but one through four. I think the Cubs and Reds are going to surprise some people with their competency this year. I know the Reds, and, and here's the thing that's frustrating about this, just from a, a general baseball standpoint. If you're a Cardinals fan, you're like, woohoo, this is fantastic. But the fact that the Reds traded away Jesse Winker, like they made a lot of different trades that were more predicated upon what it meant for the payroll and the money than how to be competitive. They kind of sold off some pieces that I really thought could have helped them. But they're bringing in some young pieces like Nick Lodolo and Hunter Green into their rotation, two top pitching prospects. I think those guys are studs. I think one of them could win Rookie of the Year. It wouldn't surprise me. And so I think the Reds can actually be pretty moderately competitive. But the Cubs, I'm even more impressed with what they've done this offseason. They they got Seiya Suzuki from Japan, the outfielder. They, they got Stroman. They're actually spending money. I believe they signed Andrelton Simmons. Like, they're making some moves that, especially like the one-year deal for Simmons, if you get to July and they're not contending, they can sell that off and they can they can get more prospects for, you know, whatever short-term deals they sign, get prospects for those guys, trade them away. But then I think by the beginning of 2023, the Cubs are going to be a little bit more involved than, than maybe Cardinals fans would like to believe in terms of uh, trying to make a run at the division once again. I think it's a little early for them. I think the prospects that they picked up, uh, they're not quite ready yet to make their uh, to make their arrival. Guys like Nick Madrigal, I think Nick Madrigal, who they got from the White Sox, and I believe it was the Kimbrel trade. Uh, don't correct me on it because I'm not going to look it up, but they got Madrigal. He's a second baseman. He's an OBP guy, not a big power guy. He's going to be a pest. 
he's going to be one of those guys. He's going to be the next uh, just opposing player, Cubs player, that the Cardinals fans just grow to hate because I think he's going to be really good and really annoying for St. Louis. I just like that the Cubs are kind of working the periphery to pick up some pieces that that maybe help them with their foundation for a year from now to be maybe a little better than we might have expected when they were selling off everything last July. So if I had to if I had to go on it right now and again I reserve the right to change this officially when I do the math because I'll write out my predicted records for all 30 MLB teams and it's obviously got to be an even number like the wins have to equal the losses and so I'm just kind of spitballing this right now but I think the Cubs are going to make a run at a 500 season. I'm going to say for now, they don't quite get there. 80 wins, 82 losses, but I think it's going to be closer than people might expect. Uh, their, their pitching behind Stroman is going to be interesting, but I think they've got some young arms that are going to make their appearances and try to get things going this year. So I think they win 80 games, and that's third place in the division. The Reds are going to be right behind them at either 78 or 79 wins. Again, I think they've got good young pitching. I think they traded away some of their hitting that they shouldn't have done, but uh, they've still got enough to be able to make things interesting. I might bump that down to 77 when I end up doing my math. But uh, I think that's four teams that aren't terrible in the division. And so that's why, you know, you might say, well, the the, the winner of this division should win 95 games. I'm going to say they don't. I'm going to say the Brewers don't quite get there and the Cardinals are going to scrape for 90, but maybe not quite get there. Because I think I think the division is going to be a little bit tougher than, than people might expect. And then the Pirates, of course, are going to finish in last, but uh, I don't really know for them if they win 60. I don't think they lose 100, but they probably lose close to it, 96 games. They've got some talented players too, but right now it's frustrating that they're not bringing them up. You look across MLB, Julio Rodriguez is up. Bobby Witt Jr. for the Royals is up. Uh, Spencer Torkelson for the Tigers is up. All these teams are calling up their top prospects, and they're the, the Pirates are with O'Neill Cruz, who's going to be a really good shortstop, not calling him up. And uh, I don't know how to pronounce the man's name, but Roenzi uh, Contreras, I believe, is a starting pitcher who's really a solid prospect as well. They're not calling him up to start the year either. So uh, the Pirates got to get their stuff figured out. But at the end of the day, I think they're still the worst team in the division. Uh, even if that after they bring up some of those guys, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle. But Brian Reynolds is a stone-cold killer. So I got to give him credit where he is due. Uh, love that guy. Love his game. So that's kind of the way I see the division shaking out. Brewers, Cardinals, Cubs, Reds, Pirates. And the, I think the Brewers and the Cardinals end up making the uh, making the playoffs. I might do a more specific podcast on the way I see the playoffs panning out. Uh, I'm running out of time to get to that today because I want to get into the Cardinals roster specifically and kind of what I expect for 2022 from these guys. Uh, but if you're interested in that, let me know because I can go ahead and do that. Uh, I can do that in, in the coming days, maybe over the weekend. Just say, hey, we'll talk about some Cardinals stuff as well, but in the podcast, one of these upcoming podcast, we'll go ahead and make sure that I let you know what I think. I will have already tweeted it out, who I think is going to win the World Series, what I think the playoff matchups are going to be, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we'll get into it there. So that'll be kind of cool. But for now, let's get into some expectations for the active roster and what I see happening. First of all, I'll tell you what I think the lineup will be tomorrow. And we've talked about this maybe previously, but it's pretty clear now that Dylan Carlson's locked into the leadoff spot. And I like that because... I think he just has more offensive upside than Tommy Edmond does. Edmond's going to be kind of that second leadoff man. He'll be at the bottom of the lineup. Uh, you'll probably have Harrison Bader right in front of him. I think it'll go something like you'll get uh, you get Carlson leading off, Goldsmith two, O'Neill three, Arenado four. Albert will probably be in the five hole with DeYoung then six, Yachty seven, or you could reverse Yachty and DeYoung. I don't know what Marmal will do. 
with Bader eight, and then it'll be Tommy Edmond batting ninth, and Adam Wainwright, of course, on the mound. So that's what I think will happen. We'll we'll check my math on that, but I think that's basically what they've been running out the last couple of days in Grapefruit League play, and so wouldn't necessarily be much of a surprise if they stuck with it. Let's talk about some expectations, though, for some of these guys. I'm just looking at the active roster. Let's start with the infielders. What do we think Nolan Arenado this season? Last year, Arenado would probably tell you his first season in St. Louis was a bit of a disappointment for him offensively. He obviously won the gold glove. It's like his millionth in a row. I think ninth actually is the number, but it, it feels like a million. He's never had a gold glove award that he didn't win in, in a full season in MLB, so tells you a little bit about his prowess defensively. Uh, certainly he'll want to go do it again this year. But I think offensively is where we need to hone in a little bit on Arenado for what to expect this season. Last year, 255 average, lower than he's had, right? That's not, it just, it feels like he's more of a guy that's going to be in that 280, 290, or even 300 range. And looking back at his numbers with Colorado, that's pretty much consistently where he was. 287, 287, 94, 309, 297, 315. And then he was 250 in the the COVID year. And then last year, 250 with the Cardinals. So I think he's putting a lot of work. He went to driveline. He talked about how Lars Newtbar convinced him to go out to driveline on the West Coast there and, and work on his swing and, and come up with some data points for uh, things he could improve. And I think those are going to pay dividends. I don't know that he'll beat 34 homers and 105 RBIs, and especially the RBIs. Those are counting stats more about what your teammates are able to do than what you do specifically necessarily. And so I, I think it's another 30 and 100 season. I don't know how far he exceeds those numbers necessarily, but I'll bet you that the batting average is above 280. I'll bet you the OBP is more in line with his career norms, 340, 350. He'll slug more than 500. I think you'll see at least an 850 OPS from Arenado next season or this season, I should say, compared to 807 last year. So that's right off the top. I think Arenado has a big season. I don't think he's my team MVP, though. I mentioned that I was going to give you what I what I said last year. Last year, I said Goldie for MVP, and I think that ended up coming true. I think his numbers were better than what Arenado did. Real quick on Goldie, 294, 365, 514. So about 70 points better in terms of OPS. Uh just a little bit behind him in homers and RBIs. And Goldie stole 12 bases last year without being caught, which I love because that is an element of his game that was present when he was with Arizona and then kind of went away when he was with the Cardinals in the first couple of years. And so I like that Goldschmidt last year was able to kind of gain that back into his game. And really, I mean, you look at his last year in Arizona, seven steals, 2019 with the Cardinals, three. And then in 2020, in the COVID year, just one. Last year, 12, thrown out none. So, he, I mean, he's one of the best base runners in baseball. I know we used to say that about Albert Pujols uh, because it was true. And you, you weren't necessarily talking about his speed when you would make that comment. But Goldsmith's the, sim, the same way. And he's still got enough speed to be able to get there. But 12 steals and not thrown out at all. I hope he's able to do that again this year. That'd be kind of cool. But for me, Goldsmith, he was the MVP last year. I would call my shot on that being the case again this year. He looks locked in, folks. Like in spring training, he was near a 500 batting average. I think he'll go 30 and 100 in terms of homers and RBIs. I think he'll cut down on the strikeouts. Struck out 136 times last year. He's never been like a guy that, like, 
with the Cardinals, you wouldn't say, oh, Goldie doesn't strike out very often. No, he kind of does. Like, he kind of has in the past uh, during his, his Cardinals seasons and, and even before that in Arizona, 151 in 2015, then 150, 147, 173, uh, 166 his first year in St. Louis. So you could actually argue he cut down on it last year with 136. That was his best number since 2014 in a full season. I bet he's even better this year. I think he's just going to be more locked in. He's going to have fewer of those at-bats where he gets fooled. Uh, I think he's going to have a really good season. Last year was 294, 365 on the OBP and 514 on the slug. I bet he I bet he does that similar slug, which was his highest uh, as a Cardinal in three years, the 514. I bet that OBP is another 360. Like, I, I think he can do it again. He'll hit right below 300, 290 to 300. And I bet he doesn't strike out as often. I think it's going to be another really good year for Goldschmidt. And that's going to be the, kind of the engine for this Cardinals offense that, that makes it go. And then you'll have Tyler O'Neill right in the middle of it. And I think that's a pretty big question about, okay, this offense has to be better. It has to be better on the whole than it was last year. But Tyler O'Neill was not a reason that the offense wasn't uh, all that it could be last year. He was one of the bright spots, to be sure. Cardinals finished dead middle in the MLB. In the MLB. I hate when people say that, and I just said it. Dead middle in MLB last season at number 15 in OPS, a 725 OPS. So they're a middle of the middle of the pack offense. And they've got to be better than that this year. I just don't see how they can they can achieve the goals that they have for themselves without improving offensively. And and OPS is a kind way to to put it. And runs scored, they finished twentieth in Major League Baseball last year. Only a handful of teams below them in the National League. So gotta score more runs, gotta be more productive offensively. Part of the way you do that, for one, is getting uh, the guys that did perform well to continue doing so this year, and that's Tyler O'Neill. 286, 352, 560 led the team in slugging percentage, 912 OPS. I don't think Tyler O'Neill OPS is 900 again. I hope he proves me wrong, but I don't think he does. I think the batting average takes a dip from 286 because you look throughout his career, he's not been that that kind of hitter. 254, 262, 173. And then last year, just exploded to 286. I think he's more of a 270, 275 hitter. But that's okay. As long as the OBP and the slugs stay the same, you don't care. And I, I do think to an extent he will continue to have success in those areas. The on-base, I don't think he's a 350 on-base guy. But he did start taking more walks last year. Still only 38. I think there's room for that to even go up. And maybe if it does go up, that's the way that he keeps the OBP pretty stable. But I'm going to say he's closer to 340 on the OBP and can still slug about 550. He was 560 last year. But to me, that's closer to 890 than it is the 912 that he did last year. And if you don't like OPS, I apologize because that's basically kind of the way I look at things in terms of rate statistics, just to keep things nice and simple. You know, we could talk home runs and RBIs as well. I think he probably gets to 30 homers, hopefully more than 80 RBIs, even with... uh, Maybe a little bit of a decline in the slugging percentage, but again, RBIs are where you hit in the lineup. What do you? What are people doing in front of you? And I think honestly, if you get Dylan Carlson as a on base guy as the leadoff man, that might end up helping you out a little bit to get uh, more RBIs for O'Neill. And I think Dylan will end up being the leadoff guy. And since we're talking about Dylan, let's go ahead and give you give you some thoughts on him. What will he do relative to last year? Had a 780 OPS last year, which is pretty good. Five points slower than Harrison Bader, by the way. But Dylan was 266, 343, 437 in 2021. 
I think he can be better. If I'm looking for areas, I think he'll hit 20 home runs. First of all, he was 18 last year. I think he'll get to 20. I don't think... I saw somebody with their bold prediction. I think they said he'll be a 30-30 guy. Uh, Dylan Carlson does not steal bases. Only two last year. So I don't think he's going to be that guy. But I think he gets to 20 homers. And I think he can raise that batting average a little bit. Maybe 270, 275 after being 266. I think getting to 350 would be a really good goal for his on-base percentage. And then the slugging, I'm not going to really set a big number for that because it doesn't that doesn't need to be his role as the leadoff man. But if he's OB, OBPing 350 and he can slug, you know, 440 or even 450 to get to get 800 OPS, I think that's the way that he does it. 350, 450 could get him there. And if he hits 20 homers, he had 31 doubles last year. I say he gets to at least 35 doubles this year. I think he ends up being a good leadoff man and scoring, uh, let's say, 90 runs. He scored 79 last year. I think he can certainly get to 90. Uh, and looking at last year's team, only Goldsmith and Edmund eclipsed 90 runs scored for the Cardinals in 2021. So I say you can add Dylan Carlson to that list this year and probably take Edmund off for the reasons that I will detail when I get to him in this evaluation. Harrison Bader, that's going to be interesting because I would say last year for Harrison Bader was one of his more complete seasons as as an MLB player. You look at his numbers, highest OPS in his career, even higher than that 2018 season that kind of put him on the map. That was a 756. Even higher than his 2020 season that people did not really realize because it was the COVID-shortened season. That he had a 779 OPS and was, was the highest producing outfielder in, in the Cardinals outfield in 2020. And last year, he wasn't the highest producing because of O'Neill, but he was pretty darn good. 267, 324 OPS, or pardon me, OBP was 324 and a 460 slug. Bader could always, it always seems like with his speed, he could be that guy that makes more contact, is more selective at the plate to get a higher OBP. But he has slugging in his game, and you don't need to take that out of his game. And so I'm going to, I'm not going to say he gets to, well, honestly, if he gets the playing time, he should get to 20 homers. So I'll say he does. He was 16 last year but he only had 401 plate appearances due to injury. So he was on a pace certainly to hit 20 homers. I say he'll do it. I say he's going to hit around 260 again, maybe maybe closer to 250. It was 267 this year. If he can replicate that, be a little more selective, take a, take a few more walks. What's really interesting is strikeout-wise, he wasn't that bad. Like people, I think oftentimes view Bader like in their head anecdotally as this big strikeout guy. He wasn't. 401 plate appearances, only 85 strikeouts. In the modern game, that is not bad at all, folks. You, you, I mean, you take that to 600 plate appearances, which is like, quote-unquote, a full season, and for guys at the bottom of the lineup, it's not even probably that many. But if you equate that to 600 plate appearances, that's only like 125 strikeouts, 127. That's not a crazy number in, in modern MLB by any means, especially for a guy who's as dynamic as what Bader can bring to the table. And so for me, the key to Bader is just he can't have those slumps where he just disappears for a while. And that's what he was susceptible to. Even in 2020, when he had the 779 OPS, he hit 226. He would go for slumps. He would disappear. That He needs to get rid of that from his game. And I think he did a better job of that last year. But if he can continue on that progression, I still say he can be one of the most explosive dynamic players in baseball because of what he brings defensively. You look at wins above replacement, and I do, 3.9 last year, according to baseball reference. That's almost a four-win player for a guy who who missed basically a quarter of the season. 103 games played. 
maybe a third of the season in terms of his, his plate appearances and at-bats, but 103 games played. That's a six-win player, potentially, if you get him to hit like he did last year and play defense like he did last year over a full 162. I'm telling you, there aren't that many players in baseball that can do that. And so if he can just continue on the, the progression he's had offensively, which, again, he was 16% above average offensively last year, an OPS plus of 116, which got him right to a career average of 100 for OPS plus. So over five years and 1,451 plate appearances, Harrison Bader has been a league average player in center field. And what he brings defensively makes him above average. So if that's your guy batting eighth in your lineup and he's producing that way, the Cardinals can be successful. Again, Harrison Bader, not the reason the Cardinals offense didn't click. In terms of some inconsistency, you could point to that, certainly. But on the whole, his numbers were were perfectly adequate and, and honestly even better than that. So I don't know if he goes 116 on OPS+. plus. I'll say he'll, he'll OPS closer to 760. And kind of like he did in 2018, I think is what you see from him this year, but more consistent across the board. But he's always an explosive player, too. So with that inconsistency, then comes the, the, the high upside of he'll just carry you for a week at a time. And so I don't know if he'll ever rid himself of that. I don't know if, that you want him to. You just want to kind of take the peaks as they come in, in the valleys, try to make those last not as long as they have in the past. I think that would be a good goal for Bader in 2022. Trying to move things along here quickly, though. Let's get into Tommy Edmond. He was a leadoff guy last year. Tommy two bags, 41 doubles. Looks like that led the team in 2021. Uh, hit double hit double digits and homers. Stole 30 bases. He was 30 for 35 in steal attempts. The first Cardinal to steal 30 since Edgar Renteria, and I believe it was 2003. That is not an insignificant statistic. Only 95 strikeouts for 641 at-bats and 691 plate appearances. That is exceptional in terms of contact in the modern game. Now, he hit 262. OBP of 308. That's why he's not the leadoff man anymore. I thought at times last year Mike Schultz should have realized it, and and it seems Ali Marmol off the top has that maybe you get a little more upside out of Carlson. It was right-handed pitching that did Tommy Edmond in last season. On the year, he hit 262, 308, OBP, and a 387 slugging percentage, which meant that he OPS below 700 for the second year in a row. He had 850 OPS his rookie year which was only a partial season in 2019, but I believe that was high on the team. An OPS, an on-base percentage plus slugging percentage of 850, which is just remarkable. That's power and on-base, a combination that that was frankly not sustainable. And he hasn't been able to sustain it, and so it's not necessarily a surprise. However, the way he can improve, and again, still a 3.7 war, according to baseball reference, which does kind of skew toward defense. If you look at fan graphs, they're going to, their war is going to be lower for a lot of the Cardinals because they don't quite weight defense. I think the same as fan graph or pardon me, as baseball reference does for wins above replacement, but still 3.7. That's not an insignificant number. Granted that was in nearly 700 plate appearances. So he played a lot and he, he batted lead off a lot, but you look at the difference right-handed pitching last year. 261 average, left-handed pitching, 267, pretty much the same. On-base percentage, identical, 308 to 308. Didn't matter. He was getting on base at a 308 clip no matter who he faced. But the slugging, he had no power against righties. He actually hit more home runs in 
157 plate appearances compared to 534. Almost 400 fewer plate appearances against lefties, and he hit more homers, 6-5. to five. The slugging percentage against lefties, 484, and against righties, 358. So he OPS 665 against righties, 794 against lefties. He was great against lefties. He crushed left-handed pitching. Mike Schilt started to kind of recognize that toward the end of the season and, and would adjust accordingly. I think from the top, Ali Marmol is going to be ready for that. You're going to see Tommy Edmond play a, a critical role against lefties. Not saying he's going to lead off necessarily because that might be Carlson's job now. But I, I think that you're going to see him be in there against lefties. You'll probably see him be in there against righties. He's going to get an opportunity. But don't be surprised if midseason rolls around and if Edmond is still not doing as well against righties this year, Nolan Gorman is going to be a factor. And you could start to see that turn into a platoon where Gorman gets called up. He's in the lineup and at second base against uh, right-handed pitching, and then the short side of the platoon goes to Edmund, and Edmund's kind of a super sub defensively late in games. Could absolutely be the case if Edmund is not uh, contributing offensively the way they want to see him do. So, kind of hard to give uh, season statistical predictions for Edmund because uh, he's not going to lead the league in at-bats at 641 the way he did last year. He led the National League in at-bats. That's not going to be the case. He's going to bat toward the end of the lineup. He's, maybe that'll help him in not being kind of exposed as much, but I think you're going to still get the most out of Tommy Eben in the at-bats that he plays. I, I'm i not saying he's going to keep his job as the, the predominant starter for the whole season, though. I do think eventually they've been putting Nolan Gorman to second base for a reason. Like, he's learning the position. In the modern game, I get it that, that Tommy Eben won a gold glove, but in the modern game, you do have to prioritize offense a little bit more than defense. The Cardinals have made their hay by prioritizing defense. They had six gold glovers last year. I'm not saying that's a bad strategy, but I do think that if there comes a point in the season where the offense is sluggish and they're looking for a jolt, you could start to see that be a sacrifice made. Second base of all the positions might be the one where you can say we're going to take a little bit more offense than defense if we can find a way to make that happen. And so that could be a platoon in development. Just keep an eye out on that. Let's talk about the other position in the infield that's a little bit up for grabs. It's Paul DeYoung. He's had a great spring, and that's a good thing because in 400 plate appearances last year, he hit 197, 284 on base, was the only guy in the starting lineup besides Yachty to have an OBP lower than 300, and he slugged 390 for a 674 uh, OPS. Can't happen. It's not going to work. He's not going to keep the job. He didn't keep the job last year doing that, and he won't. He certainly won't this year. However, spring training, 435 uh, batting average, 536 on base in an 826 slug in 28 plate appearances. I'm not saying he's going to do that, but I think Paul DeYoung's going to have a bounce back season. And I say this every year, and so maybe I'm just the sucker, but I'm going to say it again this year. I think he has a bounce back season. I think he's a little bit closer to what he was earlier in his career with the numbers offensively that got him that big extension. I say big. That got him the extension that he got early. I'm looking 760, 770 for the OPS. I'm not going to go crazy, but that would be 100 points better than he had the last two seasons, and I think he can do that. I think he can knock on the door again of 25, 30 home runs. I think he can pretty much hold down the job for the majority of the season. I think Paul DeYoung's going to have a good year. This will be the last year I say that, I promise. If he's bad this year, I'll be like, okay, I'm the sucker. I've been the sucker for three years. I'm done saying it. I was the idiot, but I, I'm going to say I'm in this corner again going into the season. I like how he's looked in spring, and I think he can get the job done. Moving on to Yachty, uh, and we can get more into DeYoung and, and any of these guys that you want to hear more about when we have more time, but we're, we're trying to go rapid fire. We're already 40-plus minutes into this thing. 
Yachty, I don't really have anything to say. He'll hit his 10 homers. He'll get his 55, 65 RBIs. Uh, he won't strike out 100 times because he never does. And he'll be what he is. He's not a power guy anymore. I'd like to see him OBP more than 297, but I'm not going to say that's going to happen. He's declining. If anything, ideally, he'll let Andrew Kisner play a little bit more. Uh, maybe you see some Yvonne Herrera late in the season. That might be a little early for that, but depending on his development. Yachty, his goal is to to make sure the pitchers are are in good position, and I think he'll be able to do that this year. Uh, same thing for Albert. Well, not defensively, but Albert, I, I don't really have a, a hot take about he's going to hit his 20-some-odd homers to, to be able to get to 700 for his career. But if you look at his numbers, you know, it, it hasn't been good in terms of uh, the decline that he's that he's had in his career with the Angels and then uh, with the, the Dodgers last year, he was better. And, and against left-handed pitching, that was kind of the key, right? He's not been a splitty guy for his career, but last year he was. Against lefties, he mashed, and he wasn't very good at all against righties. 204 uh, plate appearances with the Dodgers. He has 759 OPS. You count the time with the Angels that he spent at the beginning of the year. That season-long OPS drops to 717. And so what do you expect to get from him this year? Uh, actually, 17 home runs and 296 plate appearances. Kind of crazy to think that if he were a 600 plate appearance guy, he could still be a 30-plus home run guy. He hasn't hit 30 homers in an MLB season since he was 36 years old back in, what was that, 2016 with the Angels. So I don't think he's hitting 30. I don't think he's getting 600 plate appearances. But I do think he can be productive. I, I don't know how well he'll do against right-handed pitching, though. He's going to start on Thursday against a righty. That's the right move. You're not going to not start Albert Pujols on opening day. It'll make 22 in a row for him. But he'll mostly face left-handed pitching, I think. But I, I, honestly, he'll probably still get a, a lot of play against righties, especially early in the season, to kind of see whether or not he can do it. And then from there, they might diminish uh, the playing time at the DH role as the season goes on. If they do so, that will be in favor of Lars Newtbar, of Corey Dickerson, I don't know how many at-bats those guys are going to get, so it's kind of hard to say uh, what I expect from either of them. But I expect Corey Dickerson will be a good on-base guy. He won't give you much power. I think Lars Newtbar could give you a little bit of everything uh, if he gets the opportunity to do so. I hope he gets to play some, but then again, if he does, it might mean in, it might happen because of other guys being injured, and you don't want that. So I'm interested to see what Newtbar is able to do. Uh, I think Corey Dickerson will be a good addition but again, these are the bench guys. Same thing with Edmundo Sosa. I think he can do similar to what he did last year. Maybe won't be as offensively productive. You look at his OPS, it was higher than DeYoung's. It was pretty solid. Uh, he's more of a defensive first guy, though, in my mind. So we'll see what he's able to do as far as sustainability there offensively. But again, these are the bench guys, and I just wanted to kind of touch on them pretty quickly. And I am way over the time that I wanted to spend on this podcast, and, and so apologize for that. But Real quickly, going to give you kind of a, a rundown of what I think about the rotation. Going to skip the bullpen for the most part for today. We can talk about that a different day. And I'll, I'll even get into more depth on the rotation as well. But I just wanted to note that I think it's going to be a big season for Wainwright. Like, he's got to do it again. Basically, where the Cardinals have, have put their rotation in, in position to do. They need Wainwright to do it again. And so, I think it's another 190-plus innings Maybe he gets to 200 again. That would certainly be a worthy goal for him. Can he be as effective as he was last year? It almost seems impossible that he would be just because of how just absolutely fantastic he was last year. I mean, you look at his numbers last year. He was 
he was legitimately a Cy Young candidate. I know that he didn't win the award. I know that he got a few votes, but 206 innings is nothing to sneeze at. 305 ERA, 17-7 record. I think those are things that he's he's going to try to do again. I don't think his ERA will be quite as good. The innings may not be quite as high, but I don't see any reason for him to slow down. I'm done denying the guy. I'm done doubting him. I said that a couple times. I'm just not going to do it anymore. I think he's fantastic, and would love to see him do it again. On the other guys, I'm going to touch on innings. I think Miles Michaelis and Dakota Hudson can be sneaky in terms of their ability to eat innings for the Cardinals this year, especially when you think about the fact that they were injured at times last year. Like Hudson came on just toward the very end, and Michaelis was on again, off again, just couldn't stay healthy until maybe the latter part of the season. I think that Michaelis can be back to kind of that innings eater that he was, six innings per start. He's going to be a quality start machine. It'll be a lot of six and a third and three runs, but I think he'll be able to get that done. I'll say his ERA is right below four. I think Michaelis has a good season. I'll go 3.95 on the ERA, and I think he can get to 190 innings. I think Hudson, even off of the Tommy John, can get to 180-plus innings because I think he'll pitch to contact. He will get double play balls that will shorten his outings. He's going to get into the sixth and seventh and, and maybe even eighth innings more often than you think. And so I like that for Hudson to be able to be kind of an innings eater in a surprise way. I don't know that Matt's will be necessarily an innings eater. Uh, we'll see. He was pretty efficient in his last spring outing, I know. But I think he'll be effective. I, I don't know if I'll – and again, it kind of sounds homery to say, yep, all these pitchers are going to have an ERA below four and they're going to be great. But I do think you can see Matt's right around four for the ERA – maybe 150, 160 innings. Like, he's never been a guy that's been a huge innings eater. He's had injury issues previously, uh, not lately, but in the past. And then you had the COVID season, and last year didn't throw a ton of innings. So I don't know what you'll get there. But the lefty in the rotation, I think, is going to be a good thing. Like, they've tried to put different guys like Gomber over the years, and it was not like an actual bona fide one of your starting five that you picked, that you chose at the beginning of the year. It was always like out of necessity, this lefty would come in. Wade LeBlanc last year. John Lester. But I think legitimately, uh, Stephen Matz could be a good answer. And so we'll see what he's able to do. Jordan Hicks, he's in the rotation for now. I don't think he's going to be a big innings guy. If he can get built up to four or five innings per start by the end of April, that's great. And then rely on the bullpen. Just have him be effective innings, I think, should be the goal uh, from that perspective. So that's going to pretty much do it. We're at the 50-minute mark now. I do want to run through real quick. I'm going to say that Goldschmidt, once again, will be my MVP. I'm going back to the well on Wainwright uh, for the Gibby, for the uh, Cy Young Award for the Cardinals, so to speak. I went with him last year. I was right. Rookie of the year, I went with Dylan last year. It certainly probably was. This year, for me, it's either Andre Pallante or Lars Dupar. They're kind of my 1A, 1B. I don't think you see enough of Gorman. I don't think you see enough of Libertor for those guys to make that kind of dent. Uh, same thing for Brendan Donovan. I just don't think he quite gets enough play. Reliever of the year, I said Reyes last year. He was an all-star. I certainly think that was a, a valid answer in, in retrospect. For this year, reliever of the year, I'm going to go with Cabby. I'm going to say Henesis Cabrera has a big season. No more Andrew Miller, and so Cabby's kind of got to be that. And again, he was that last year, but he's got to be that number one lefty out of your bullpen, and I think he does a good job for the Cardinals this season, I think Gallegos is probably ends up falling into that closer role more often than not, but it'll be interesting to explore whether or not that happens. And then for a bold prediction, bold prediction, I know I've done this before, but I'm going to go back to the well. I said I was going to do it 
on Paul DeYoung, and I think I'm going to. I'm going to say Paul DeYoung ends up having a, a good season, holds down the shortstop position, ends up being a, a kind of a catalyst for the Cardinals' offense. Remember back when he was going, they trusted him as the cleanup man more often than not. And you were like, okay, that's a little bit much. But in this offense, I think it's a really good fit that he doesn't have to be the star. I think he's finally adjusted and, and, and recognized that adjustments were needed to his swing and to his game offensively, the way he approaches it day-to-day. So I think he's going to have a really good season. I'm not going to say all-star, but I think pretty good. Uh, I will say that I think Dakota Hudson could be an all-star. That's going to be kind of my my sneaky, bold prediction as well. I think Hudson has a big season. I know that when you look at the Fipsters and the analytics and the sabermetrics, they don't like Hudson because he doesn't miss enough bats. I say I don't care. When you've got six gold glovers on your defense, you probably are going to win another five or six of them this year. I think Dakota Hudson perfectly fits what this Cardinals defense does and what they bring to the table. And so I think he has another really good year now that he's healthy. I think he eats a lot of innings. I think he can be an all-star and a big part of the reason why the Cardinals end up back in the playoffs this season. There's all kinds of stuff that we could have talked about that I didn't get time for in 52 and a half minutes. And so if you've got more topics of conversation that you'd like me to cover on B-Shape Daily, send me a direct message on Twitter at bshafer 12 But make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well so you're able to catch up with all the episodes when they are released. You can subscribe to B-Shafe Daily on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Do it so that you're caught up on everything that we do here this Cardinals baseball season. I appreciate you guys so much for listening. If you made it through this entire episode, give me a shout-out on Twitter. Shoot me a direct message and say, hey, I listened to the whole season preview. I thought it was terrible, or I thought it was great. Whatever you thought of it is fine with me, but I just appreciate you guys for being there. That's going to do it, though, for this edition of B-Shape Daily, and we will talk to you next time on the other side of the Cardinals' opening day game against the Pirates. Thank you all so much. This has been B-Shape Daily. Peace.